this conversation that I want to have is about why we speak out. Because it just sets the tone of why we're doing this and why we think it's important. So what I want to do is just do a quick introduction. Your name, how long you were in the movement, and then how long you were out before your first public media thing came out. I'll start. My name is Sam. I was in the far right for one year. And I was out for two years when I started speaking out publicly. I'm Lauren. I was in the movement for a total of eight years. I was out for about three or four years for my first ever public engagement. My name's Chuck. I was involved with the movement for roughly 15 years, a little bit more than that, really. And I was out for a little over 10 before I did any public speaking. I'm Brad. I was in the movement for about 13 years. It was about six years until I started telling my story. When you guys did start speaking out, what were the circumstances of it? And like, did you feel like you were ready? Like I, I had this guy, he was writing a book about the far right and there was a chapter for me in it. And his publisher promised basically like a postmortem with one of the characters in his book. So I did it kind of as a favor to him. And I thought I was ready to speak out. Like I knew I wanted to eventually, but I was not ready at the time. And I didn't realize how not ready I was. To this day, I have no media training, nothing like that. I didn't know I could set boundaries. I didn't know I could say no to things. There was just such a an amount of self-preservation and self-respect and dignity that you don't realize you can have if you don't exercise that or understand that. But what about you guys? How did it go for y'all? For me, my first ever public speaking event was out in Alberta. Actually, Brad was there too. He probably remembers it. I would say that one went over very well. The audience was receptive of it. I would say I was ready, but of course, general nervousness before I go up. It's like, oh, what if I say something wrong? Or the constant thing in my head of don't swear, but of course I always do. Yeah, so I, I quite enjoyed that one. Now, my first ever media engagement... I can't remember every waking detail of it. However, it was a film project, which actually never made it on air. They just didn't air it for whatever reason. That one I was not prepared for because they got into really, really specific questions other than focusing on my story as a whole. I remember being asked, you're part English. What were you ever doing in a movement that supported Hitler? And I'm like, hey, listen, this can happen to anybody, including folks of non-white heritage. And... I don't think they like that answer too much, as true as it is. And then they got into like really gender specific stuff. So they had asked me, how could you have ever been in a movement that's so misogynistic? And I'm like, I have news for you. Women can be pieces of shit, too. (laughs) They also didn't like that one. So I don't know. Maybe they just didn't want truth. Who knows? Media definitely has a narrative of who falls into it and how it happens, how people get out, the average intelligence of someone who falls into the movement and like socioeconomic status. And I found that exactly like you said, Lauren, people will try and like corner you into this sort of like, well, how could you have done X, Y, or Z? Or how did you not know that was happening? It's just crazy. Like no one came to me with a bonnet with swastika on it and said, this is what you believe now. It's so much more insidious than that. To kind of put things back on what we were talking about, I was out for a long time, and, and when I first got out, there were no DRAD groups. You know, none of this stuff really existed. There were a, a couple of people who had been out for a while and had been talking, 
but there was nowhere you could go for peer mentoring or help or a social worker or anything like that, like we're starting to see now. I read Frankie Mink's book and reached out to him on Facebook. And this was all right about the time Life After Hate was getting started. And the inspiration of Frank, Angela, and Arno, and a few other people who had been out and were doing this stuff kind of led me to want to start speaking out myself. And even though I had been out for years and thought that I was ready to tell my story and wanted to tell my story as sort of a redemptive kind of thing, after a few years of repeatedly talking about the same thing over and over again to multiple media outlets and classroom environments and things like that, it really became a heavy burden. You know, you relive the trauma when you're doing that. And I didn't understand. There was nobody to tell me, really, this is going to dredge up bad feelings for you when you keep talking about this stuff over and over and over again. It's not easy. It's not easy to talk about. And people need to understand and be ready for how they're going to feel when they're going through that. When you did start speaking out, what kind of like inner work did you do? Did any of that inner work end up helping at all? Or did you find yourself back in the same place of like, what am I doing? Can I do this? I, I got to a point where I was like super burned out. A lot of this was through Life After Hate, but Life After Hate has done some evolution since that time too. I went through all this stuff and, and got burnt out and had to stop and take a break from doing anything. I just said, that, you know what, I'm, I'm done for a while. And that lasted a couple of years. And since then, it's given me a lot of perspective and have a lot easier time setting boundaries and, and knowing when I need to, to take a step back and not be talking about it anymore. And I don't feel obligated to lay my life out there for everybody to observe anymore. When I speak about this stuff now, it's in situations and for reasons that I'm okay with. I'm not doing it because I feel like I have to because of who I was. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually a great question. What was everybody's motivation for speaking out? Like, were you guys trying to get ahead of it or did you feel like you owed it to people? Did you just want to share the story and set the record straight? What was the motivating factor? When I had left the network that I was a part of, obviously there were a couple people who I missed and I had also hoped that they would take the same path someday. And actually one of them did. So for me, it was about being able to reach the people that were in the void or very early on in their exit who just felt lost like I did. Because frankly, I wouldn't wish that one on anybody. Like there's no way to get rid of those feelings, I think, but there is a way for someone else to help you make them a little bit easier to sit with. So the guy that reached out to me, he was also part of my old network. And he had told me that he had left within a matter of months, actually, I think after I did. And apparently he had followed everything that I was doing publicly and stuff. And he had said that that actually kept him out. So, I mean, just that message alone, that's enough for me. I think that's fucking awesome, Lauren. At this point, I feel like that's why I don't want to speak for everybody, but that's definitely why I speak out. I hate media. But I do it because it's like even just knowing that one person sees that they can and they decide to do it, like that is 100% worth it. I met Tony in 2015. He was kind of like telling me about what happens when you talk in public. And I found it really helpful to speak with him in that sense. I felt like Tony had let me in just saying, you know, tell your story, be you. 
Don't try to tell every story that exists out there. Try to be as honest as possible because there's a lot of folks around that are doing whatever they're doing out there. I found Tony very helpful as just sort of a mentor in that sense. And also being able to connect with your story. I remember Tony telling me a lot about that, like being able to find the spots in your story that you really connect with and how to tell that. It's those moments, you know, those, those questions you get from media or we get from academics where they're like, so what was that light bulb moment for you that you realized you wanted to not be in the movement, right? It's that, but it's not that. It's thinking about the moment that you got beat up or you harm somebody or you harm society. I, I often reference it early on when I almost got killed by a Vietnamese gang when I was in the movement. Like what that means to me now meant something a lot different to me when I was in the movement. It was like a martyr crisis that I had going on in my head. Like, oh, I survived that. But now I look back on it as like the person who saved my life was an ex-Jewish doctor. So I look at it a much different like way than yeah. the violence, like promoting the violence is something to romanticize about. No, it's more like how I connect with the person who saved my life and that I'm still here to tell this, to be able to talk about this story and talk about communities that give even to the worst folks when I was a really awful person at that time in my life. So, you know, how do you, how do you connect with those parts of your life, of, of your story, of your experiences with the movement? We hear a lot of folks talk about the movement. I, I, I see these videos of these guys talking that are formers and they're like, yeah, and I was this and I was that. They're still in the movement. They're talking about themselves presently. That's how it feels to me. You know, it's not connecting with all of the things that you did represented a really horrible time in your life, both for you and society, right? Actually, we, I grew up in and out of AA like my entire life. And they say there's a difference between being in recovery and being a dry drunk. And dry drunk is like, I just don't drink. That's it. You don't do anything else to be better or to do whatever, but you'll go to like an AA meeting and they'll call them war stories or like glory days. You'll go in and you'll be like, man, I used to drink this much and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, cool story, bro. But also... What did you learn from that? It sounds like you're still proud of that. I wonder if you guys deal with it too, that especially when I first got out, not that I was ever proud of it, but I felt like I had to qualify myself, right? Like I wasn't in for 10 years, five years or anything like that, but I, I did work while I was in there, you know, but I feel like I have to qualify myself to say that I'm worthy of this redemption or of this journey. Do you guys ever deal with that? Like, I will also remind everyone that it didn't matter what you did, you were still king turd of shit mountain it doesn't matter who you were like you were promoting awful stuff and the higher up you were that's less to be proud of but did you guys ever do that or try and adjust your story to kind of like present in a certain way that might not necessarily be accurate to you now mean no i never bothered doing that only because number one I am a really terrible actress. I cannot put on an act to save my life. People would see right through it if I tried to be something I wasn't. So we're just not going there. And number two, I don't find it constructive at all. Like, how does that help anybody at the end of the day? You want to measure something, measure your success leaving and the successes you have outside of the movement, not how shitty we were. I was more garbage than you were. Well, like, and it's like, you know, you can have cooler or funnier stories outside of the movement. Like, I know that I do. I think Chuck and I were talking like the first time we had met on a Zoom meeting and we both agreed that 
your worst day outside of the movement is infinitely better than your best day in the movement. Like there's just no, once you're on the other side of it, you're just kind of like, it really didn't matter what happened in there. Like it all sucked. Also, like when I'm 20, 30, 40, 60 years out of the movement, I don't want to be talking about how I got into it. I want to talk about that 20, 30 years of my life after getting out and how to stay out and how to maintain spiritual and mental health. Those are not the good old days to me. I've been in those situations where it's a bunch of formers. Life After Hate started in 2011-ish. And so for the first five or six years or whatever, a bunch of us would get together for whatever. And you would get those, the war stories and stuff. And like people evolved out of it and some people didn't. And I, I think that at a certain point, you have to quit resting on those laurels and mature and grow as a person and become something different and have a different story to tell. That being the story of how you're succeeding now in this life that is not genocidal, hateful. Absolutely. Do you feel like, or as long as you think you can offer help, you want to do it and you're willing to do it? As long as it's good for me and everybody else. It's, it's a little of all of that for me. Like when I first started, really my primary motivation was feeling like I needed to atone and in some way penance for my sins or whatever. But now 10 years on or whatever it is that I've been doing this stuff, like officially as part of an organization that does de-radicalization or whatever you want to call it. There's the aspect of, yeah, I'd rather be telling a story that has a little more maturity to it than some of the other people that I hear out there talking. Not that I think I'm like the most mature person in the world, but I, I think that I talk about things that aren't just, you know, I was such a badass guy back then. I try to talk more about like how to enter back into society and be okay with things that you used to believe were a Jewish conspiracy and, you know, have a job and a career and, and live your life and raise kids that you aren't doing significantly more damage to than you absolutely need to, you know? So that's part of it. Getting the story out there that isn't just the, hey, look at me story, because there's a lot of that out there. And, you know, it's still a little bit of the atonement thing. But more than anything else, I think like you were talking about earlier, all three of you, that the main thing that inspires me now to talk about this stuff is the hope that somebody who is in the same position I was might hear this and make a different choice than I did and not suffer the same misery. When I was talking about the stories of like how radicalization happened and like yours and Brad's story are different from Lauren's, which is different from mine, which is different from, you know, the newest iteration or whatever. I also failed to piece together that there are people from y'all's iteration from the 80s and 90s that are even now still trying to get out. And like, there are people from all over, from every age group that is trying to leave. And I think having different voices that say... You could have been in this for 30 years. You can still leave. And I feel that speaking out publicly does not have to be the only recourse and the only option you have to making atonement or making penance. I think there are ways that people can do it otherwise. So essentially, like what I've heard is that some formers are, quote, not good enough. Can't that shove somebody back into the culture that we don't want them in? I've heard of that happening. 
Yeah. And don't get me wrong, especially as formers, it's pretty easy to tell when someone's sincere about trying to change or not, like when they mean it and they're willing to take that challenge. There are people that have publicly platformed themselves or have gotten platforms that are absolutely not deserved and they're taking advantage of the public's ignorance on the situation. But I agree with you that if someone comes to you and wants help and you're just kind of like, that's not enough. You need to have this Sisyphean challenge of pushing a boulder up the hill every day for the rest of your life. Why did they bother leaving if they don't feel like there's ever going to be something for them? When I'd first reach out to try and get help for some people, there were some people that I was looking up to as like inspiration, as guidance. That would kind of just keep saying like formers these days haven't done enough and blah, blah, blah. And, they, and it just always felt like I was never going to get there. You know, like I was never going to be able to forgive myself or understand the nuance and reality of like why I joined, how I joined. Maybe our only expectation really needs to be sincerity and that's it. I think sincerity and honesty and all these different things that we're talking about are super important. I think that we learn this over time about sincerity and honesty in this space. I mean, there's always going to be parts of our story we're not going to want to talk about, but that's our trauma or whatever that we want to own. And maybe that's why we have a therapist or whatever to talk to them about those parts. But like the things that help publicly or the things that help society understand what those movements are and help other people get out those honest equations of, Hey, you know, just people can wind up in these groups. Like that's factual, but we can also get out and we can also stay out. People want to know about that stuff. The society wants to know about that. And that's cool. We can, we can give a lot of insights, whether it be the online world, the offline in-person movement, we have to be very clear that this is also something that can happen to anyone. And the far right extremist movement today is really in anybody's movement. It's not gender specific. It's not even race specific anymore. It hasn't been race specific for a long time, actually. <laughs> yeah, man. I can remember countless occasions where I ran into folks that were not white people. The one that stands out the most is I met a guy in downtown Vancouver who is indigenous and he had a big swastika tattoo. And he told me he was a white power skinhead. And I'm like, yeah, I, I've seen that. Got a lot of unpacking to do. Southern California, believe me, there's a lot of that. You know, well, yeah. the most virulent neo-Nazi skinhead I ever met, who was one of the guys who initially brought me into the actual ideology as opposed to just being a racist punk, basically, was a quarter Jamaican. So, like, yeah. Yeah. It's so wild, like white people in the white power movement speaking out about it. But I wonder if the general public does know how many people, how it's literally everyone that is susceptible to this, like anyone. It's not just white people specific or middle class or lower middle class. I think we all come from very different backgrounds and like we all ended up in the same house. I don't know. But as, yeah. as we're talking about this, I do wonder what has been the least rewarding thing about speaking out? Maybe this is just the introvert in me talking, but like I always end up super drained afterwards just because going up there and speaking, it does take quite a lot out of you. It's like picking at a scab, you know, it, it dredges up all of those old bad feelings and emotions and stuff. And so it's, it's a burden to talk about it, particularly if you're doing it a lot repeatedly in a relatively short amount of time, it becomes very emotionally draining, but also physically exhausting in a way. And then 
most rewarding. I went in for a job interview a couple of years ago and actually got the job. And the owner of the company came in while I was sitting in the interview and he asked me something and I don't even remember what it was, but he goes, Googled your name and I saw all the stuff that you're involved with. And I just want to tell you that I think it's really a great thing that you're doing all this. And I really appreciate that you have been able to make the change that you've made. This was a total stranger. I had never talked to this guy before. I mean, it was a job interview, so he had a reason to look my name up and everything. But that touched me so deeply, you know, to hear some random member of the public kind of give support, lend support for doing what we do. Yeah. Like Chuck was saying, people appreciate what we do. I have had comments like that before from people. And actually, I remember the one time my old boss from when I used to work in construction, he had reached out to me after I stopped working there. I guess he heard my voice over a podcast. And he said, I think that was you over the podcast. It must have been you. And I'm like, yes, yes, it was. <laughs> Go on. So he says, yeah, I just want to tell you that I appreciate all the work you're doing now. And he even said that when he was younger, he almost got sucked into all this himself. That's pretty cool. What about you, Brad? There's been so many times where it's been like, I think there's a recent one where I did a the interview and, and I spent an hour and a half talking with these really nice people and told them lots of stuff, traumatic stuff. And then they just posted a picture of me on the news story. It was just like picture. And then that was it. Not me talking, you know? So I wasted all that time talking to them just to have a, a and not a new picture of me, a picture of me from when I was like 20 in the movement, doing the CCAL or whatever. So great representation of who I am now. Yeah, accurate. Yeah, yeah. that was premium stuff. And I guess one of my favorite things that I, I did was the, was a documentary because I worked with these independent journalists and they were like, just really interested in changing the world's view of right-wing extremism and people that are involved in it. They didn't just focus on my own story. They went down to Portland during all that stuff just after Charlottesville. They went around and really interrogated what was happening with right-wing extremism. And I'm okay with, with what that represented, how it came out, minus the thing that I did tell them they were going to get flagged for calling it skinhead. So a bunch of like anti-racist skinheads came out and they were like, that's not what skinheads are. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, ah, yeah, good point. I did tell the CBC that, that they're going to get hosed for, but it was just another example of the white power movement trying to own something that wasn't theirs. Yeah. I'm going to jump in there with Brad and add to my least favorite parts of media appearances, the three hours of interviewing for them to use two sentences. And usually it's like the stupidest two sentences you utter through the whole thing. There's <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. We've talked about this. My interview for the Netflix thing was like 11 hours. And I think I was on screen for less than six minutes. And I just looked like a fucking giggling idiot the whole time. Where it's like, oh, the internet is crazy. And it's like, I relived trauma. I mean, I was eating cigarettes this entire interview. I just like, I couldn't. I find that to be the worst part where people are like, yeah, this would be like a 30 minute interview and it ends up being four to five hours, but it's for a six minute segment. And it's just like, stop treating us like umbrellas. You know, like we're not just here when you need information and we don't exist when you're done with us. Now we need to get some B-roll. Can you do something you like to do as a hobby? 
Yeah. Can you open you. a refrigerator? Yeah. Can you open a refrigerator and make a sandwich a couple of times like a normal person? You know what? Actually, I've I've liked some of the B roll stuff because they've had me playing bass. They've had me painting before. Sometimes it can be fun. I dragged my blood python out of the cage for the camera. <laughs> Not blood, that. Long. Yeah. Oh, like take them into the garage and show them the motorcycles. I do the stupidest stuff I can think of. Yeah, I need to start doing that. Mine is always like, can you just look at your laptop with concern? And I'm like, yeah, I do that every day. Like, sure. That's my normal hobby. I should start. I should start coming up with wild things to do. Something that I think about a lot is after a certain point in time, do you think it's fair for us to expect the evolution of wanting to talk about being out now when what made us public figures is the fact that we're formers? And is it fair of us to want to be more, to be something different? Like, I personally do think that there comes a time where if you've been out for long enough, you've been speaking about this publicly or doing the work or whatever, we do have knowledge and insight into now leaving and staying out and growing as a person and evolving or transcending, I call it, past being a former. But is that how media works? And is that fair of us to want or accept that? Well, for me, I don't mind talking about it as long as it's like the full story, not just focused on how I got in, because I've had somebody try to do that before where they just wanted to focus on my end story. And I'm yeah. like, you're going to make it sound like I'm still there. And I know you are. We're not doing this. Yeah. God, I have so many questions now. How do you feel about the weird hypocrisy of people wanting to talk to us about what to look for, but then also criticizing us for not knowing what we were getting into at the time? People will be like, how did you not know? Or like, how could you be so dumb? But also, can you tell us what to look for? And it's like, well, if I was that dumb. Maybe some advice for them. A better question would be, what have you learned since then? What have you learned from your own story? I mean, does somebody really think that we go on camera or in interviews with anybody and say, it was all rainbows and unicorns and pretty things. It just doesn't happen like that. Yeah. I think it's wild. There is no benefit for us doing this, you know, other than the internal of like, I feel like I've done a good thing, you know, that I did not do a good thing for a long time. And now I'm able to kind of help or offer insight or, or perspective. But like, we don't get paid for this. None of us, unless any of you guys have discovered the secret, but none of us are millionaires. None of us are independently wealthy because of this. I still bartend. None of us have done that. And my mom and I do get paid for the fact that we have a book, but like we get paid twice a year and it's enough to keep the lights on or keep the electricity bill going for like an hour. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. It's like yeah, you guys, but you no wrote a, this. yeah, you wrote a book. You weren't like, there are some people again that speak out that do this. Like I was such a bad person. Please give me money because I was a jerk and now I'm not. Buy my merch. Like that's, that's not good enough. For me, personally, I, I don't feel comfortable asking for or promoting people that do that. I think that's unethical. Well, even my mom had told me once when we were in the middle of writing our memoir, she had said, yeah, if you were not doing any of this work with Life After Hate, there's no way in hell we would write this thing. Really? Yeah, because, I mean, all it would be is a story of, oh, I was such a dickhead when I was younger. And then people would be like, fantastic. So what are you like and what are you doing now? Yeah. I mean, getting back in terms of all this, do we think that it's fair for us to want to be able to transcend publicly? Or do we think that's a reasonable expectation where after time we can start talking about other things than just our story? God, I hope so. We should have that 
ability to do that. I think that there's going to be plenty of people to take up the mantle of I've been out for a little while and I am trying to show you that I'm reformed and here's what I did and here's why I don't want to do it anymore. And then there are those of us that have been out for a while and talking about this stuff and have other perspectives to offer. I was just going to say something interesting you brought up with me about like being an expert or whatever. Yeah. Some of us know more than just our story, but there's the, the root formers who just are experts on their own story. I won't say his name, but you know who I'm talking about. I remember an academic saying to me at a conference once back in 2016 or 2017, it took me 10 years to get my PhD and I'm not an expert on this subject. And it really pissed them off when somebody had been talking recently at that same conference saying that they were the expert on a certain subject matter. The expert in italics. The one. And I'm going, well, shit, no, I'm not an expert. I know stuff. Buy my book. Buy my magazine. My picture's on the front. Buy my, buy my coffee mugs and, and my, my kids' onesies. Horrible. But like, and what, what can we do? What do I do about those things? When people ask me, so yeah, you're an expert on this. I'm like, I'd appreciate if you really didn't say that. Cause I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that because then I, then we have to form what we're saying as knowledgeable. No, thanks. I mean, I know stuff for sure. Yeah. Like ask away. Let's have a conversation, right? I'm an expert on what an asshole I was, but that has nothing to do with being an expert on right-wing extremism. I know very little about, you know, the overall picture of why people do this. If I knew all the answers to that, I would provide them and it would all be over. Right. I know some stuff about electrical construction. I'm pretty good at that. But as far as being like a, an extremism expert, that's laughable. You know, I, I've had zero training other than actually being in it. I mean, I have some, some life stories I can tell. I have the insight into, you know, what happened to me personally, but that doesn't make me an expert on any other human being on the planet. You know, I mean, that makes me an expert on what I went through and I don't even know if I'm an expert on that because I'm kind of an idiot. This exists across fields. And I think one of the fields that has this type of narcissism the most is policing and law enforcement in general, because I was standing at a, at a conference recently, giving a presentation about mental health and formers, because I work in the space. I literally work with people who identify themselves as formers that say they have mental health issues. And this cop goes, that's not what we're seeing. You're wrong. And I was like, okay, but anyway, who cares? Don't let the cap fool you. Yeah. Like, hello. For, for the you listening know, like, audience, Brad's wearing a Toronto Maple Leafs cap and I will never <laughs> yes. forgive him. Yeah. Go Kings. Yeah. I wish I had the hubris of I am the answer, the authority. That always blows my mind. I wonder though, for for us, like, do we not have that? Because in the movement, you feel like you are the authority and you have all the answers. And then when you leave, you realize you are so far from the truth that you're like, I never want to be accused of knowing anything ever again. <laughs> like, That's definitely part of it. Something I used to say and still do to a degree, but less so now is I don't trust my own judgment, you know? Cause my judgment got me into that shit, right? I need outside input and that isn't so much the case anymore. That's changed over time. 
I, I'm a little more trusting in myself and, and the choices I make and how I feel about things now. But for a long time there, I always questioned myself because, you know, like my, my brother told me one time that my superiority complex was going to, you know, destroy my life or something to that, that effect. And that really hit me because I had been out for a while when he said that quite a while and to hear that your superiority complex is going to ruin your life. And then some pretty bad shit happened to me not long after that. Was it a surprise to hear it because you thought that you had like done the work to be better or you just like never acknowledged that you had one? Yeah, no, this, this was like before I really had completely changed my, my heart and my philosophy about people before I got connected with Frankie and life after hate and stuff. So this was well after I exited any kind of active involvement, but before I really had changed my heart. So that really, it was a blow. And for a long time after him saying that to me, the stuff that happened in my life, I'm not going to go into all that, but it was pretty, pretty drastic and pretty painful. I, I just really didn't have any faith in being able to make smart choices for myself anyway. Actually, Chuck, I'm happy you brought that up because this is something that I've been working on with a couple of my clients recently. They always talk about not being able to trust their own judgment, not trusting themselves. If we have no higher priorities of things to focus on, that's actually what we spend a lot of time doing. Like I've spent a good couple of weeks working with people on this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you guys know, like I've worked a lot on like I have a good intuition, but I spent so much of my life ignoring it. You know, like, you know, when something's a bad idea in your gut, but you're just kind of taught to go with it or or just do whatever so-and-so is telling you to. But I mean, you guys know, I still drop in a Slack chat if I'm still trying to figure out if I should or could trust someone. I think there's a healthy amount of self-doubt that people can have that just keeps your feet on the ground. You know, like, I don't ever want to think I'm 100% right in 100% of everything that I do just because... That's not human. I have fucked up so much before that the idea that I am now impervious to mistakes is just grotesque behavior. Thinking you're 100% right about everything and you're the answer is kind of the root of fascism, honestly. Yeah. It is kind of almost like the mentality we used to have where it's like, we're the ones with the answers come to us. No, actually, we're just full of shit. And I mean, like, if you don't have questions about what you believe and what you think, any anybody who operates from a place of certainty, man, that's dangerous, you know? I'm curious to play devil's advocate on this, to go back to what Brad said, where he doesn't necessarily want to be called the expert on anything. Brad, I, I do personally consider you an expert on some things, and it's it's really weird that we're all so adamantly against being called that. Because we once played around with the idea of it, do you ever think it's something that you'll get over or accept that you could be considered that? I think that's really nice as well. But I think it's okay that if others, like when I listen to colleagues of mine, like you guys, when it, it comes to certain subjects, I could say, I think they're an expert on that. I work with my boss at the research center there. She's 100% an expert on right-wing extremism. She has been studying it for 30 years. She is it for sure an expert on that. But would she say that she is? No. Do you think it's one of those? You don't get to pick your nicknames. You also don't get to decide if you're an expert on something. Yeah, I'm yeah, sitting like, here trying to yeah. think of cliches like 
people who are truly experts don't call themselves experts. Like yeah, if you're is, really um, an expert about something, you know that you don't know it all, right? I think we should embrace the fact when, if other people look at us and say, hey, you know, that truck over there, he's really an expert on formers working in CVE work, right? That's a fair assumption that you could be an expert on that. You've been around it a long time, but saying that out loud about ourselves is weird. The point that I want to get across to people is we're not speaking out to become famous or popular or anything like that. There are also a lot of drawbacks. Like if someone is listening to this, thinking about speaking out, I just wanted to be very open and honest. It can be rewarding, but there are also a lot of pitfalls. I was talking to one of my clients recently, and we actually realized that going public kind of gives you like a nice little safety barrier against your old group. Because I don't know why this is, but ever since I went public, I have got very little trouble or contact or harassment from them. Whereas before, they'd constantly be messaging me, thinking they could get me back. No, actually, that's a great thing. What I have found, and it's kind of what you're saying, when you speak out, you simultaneously become a target and untouchable. At the same time, they're just like, we're going to get them. We're going to dox them. But also they're convinced you're a fed. They're convinced you have this, that, and the other. And I definitely have, I don't even know how to say this, but like I've been offered all kinds of stuff if I wanted any sort of security. My answer is always the same. I'm not Beyonce. I don't need it. But like, but you wouldn't mind your bank account. (laughs) I truly and honestly, but like. If I ever needed anything or if my life was ever in danger, there are people that are not at my disposal, but are available to come and protect me or keep me safe. Also, I also want to push that like the worst thing I've ever done in my life is now on international television. There's also a weird freedom that you get of, yeah, I don't have any secrets. I don't need to keep any. It is very freeing. Just put it out there and be able to say, yeah, it's out there. There's also the aspect that if something happens to somebody in our position who used to be part of a group and they come up missing or dead or whatever, who's the first suspect? Yeah. Who's the first people that are going to be suspected? Like the first place the cops are going to go look is the former group, right? You know, I think it was also Thomas that said this, that if they tried anything with him, it would only make his voice louder. And they probably know that. And the other thing too is you would hope that when someone goes public, they don't feel alone anymore. That's also fucking scary to these guys. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. So I I don't follow any of the people that I used to know and no one could pay me enough for them to take space up in my head, but I'll get updates every once in a while if something happens that's worth noting or whatever. And what I have noticed is that when I do certain media things, they'll make a comment about me leaving, but they will never, ever mention life after hate. They will never mention that I am in a former's organization or that I got out and am successfully living a good life. They know that they can't say that. And I just always find that to be so interesting. They can never say she left and her life has exponentially improved. What about you, Chuck? You've been out for a little bit longer than we have. What is that like? And do you still feel like there's the quote unquote threat or do you still have that anxiety and paranoia? I mean, no, not really. Like there's still kind of maybe an echo of it, but it's definitely not like first five, 10 years after I got out, like I stayed in the same town. So there was, there was some actually very real possibility of running into somebody, but I never, I never did. And now 
like I said, just kind of an echo. I don't really even dwell on it anymore. And actually, I didn't respond to this one, but I got a video sent to me over Facebook Messenger one time of someone lighting a copy of our book on fire. And I'm like, thanks for the sale, asshole. That's so ridiculous. Well, cry to the bank, dude. It's a bummer when you're speaking out to try and help and shed light on this situation and media muddles it and and just bungles it so badly that you're kind of embarrassed by all of it. Like, I don't want to do me. I hate media. I've never really wanted to do media. And I don't know if the media realizes that the far right laughs at it and considers it propaganda for them because of how poorly understood all of this is. Well, that's actually a part of the reason why my mom and I did the memoir, just so we have that thing that's completely authentic to us. Mind you, it's been edited to death by our publisher. That's going to happen, but it's still ours. And we could probably do an entire show on Tom Metzger's manipulation of the media and how he used it to put his message on national TV over and over and over again, and how people are still using that same model to this day, you know? Like, these guys know rhetoric. Stop acting like they're these dumb fuck people. They're smart. They have education. They know how to do this stuff. Just because their ideology is bad doesn't mean that they don't know how to twist it. Yeah, that could be a really interesting. What hasn't changed since you started speaking out, Chuck? What does media still get wrong? What does media get right now? Well, I think that probably the thing that is most wrong is that this stuff is only in the spotlight in the wake of an event, right? They only want to talk about this when something bad has happened. It's not something they want to keep in the public consciousness. They want to use it as sound bites to grab ratings because this thing just happened and now we'll talk about it. That's probably the most egregious thing. And then, you know, they far too often platform the wrong people, like you were talking about, like they, they give people in the movement time and airtime and and they think that they're smart enough to keep them from from spewing propaganda i don't know maybe it's good ratings to have a nazi on your tv station spouting nazi propaganda and recruiting people i don't know maybe that's good ratings but they really should just stop platforming them don't have them on talk about their stuff that's not free speech it's it's just platforming nazis something else i've noticed too is a former story comes out or a serious incident happens And for me, I'm like, okay, are we just trying to make people feel better about this? What are we doing? Yeah, I think two different things on that. Chuck, to your point where you were talking about platforming and outrage, there have been so many studies, especially when it comes to places like Facebook, like Twitter, all of that stuff. Those are platforms, not publishers. And the whole concept of a platform is to get clicks. And being angry about something, being outraged, having just an intense emotional reaction makes you more likely to come back or to continue engaging with this thing, either through comments or through, I'm going to see what these assholes have to say tomorrow or whatever. That is uh, all a part of the plan. And then I think even beyond the timing of it, I think the framing of it too, where it's always like, this is someone's daughter, not your daughter. It would never be your daughter or son. Don't worry, you're a good parent. You're totally fine. These people were wayward and they fell into it. But, you know, they seem normal. Their dad was an accountant and the mom was a restaurant manager. I think it's all framed in this sort of, it can happen in your neighborhood, but it would never happen in your house. And I think there's also an aspect of wanting to maintain the media framing, at least in this country, of If white kids do bad things, they're misguided and so forth and so on. But if if brown people do crime or whatever, they're bad people. So I think the media 
in a lot of cases does look for things that kind of back that narrative and showing the story of a reformed white supremacist in the wake of a white supremacist attack is a good way to further that narrative. And I think that maybe in the wake of attacks, I will in the future refrain from talking to anybody. Unless it's as an expert. Well, yeah. Yeah, yes. sometimes I just don't feel comfortable commenting on this type of thing. Like the New Zealand one, I did have quite a bit to say about it, so I went for that. But like the Buffalo one or some of the other ones, I'm like, yeah, you know what? I'll just take a back seat here for now. Yeah, I think knowing when it's appropriate for you to speak up or when like, you know, the timing makes sense and stuff. I think there are some formers that also just get on their self-made platform and are just like you should have asked me about this i've done this and i've done that like i don't i don't feel like that's appropriate for me to comment on we all kind of feel like we should step back like what do you think makes that your place to comment on this horrific fucking tragedy you know the other thing i think about many of the mass shooters like there was a lot of other things at play not just ideology with them i think also there's a level I don't yet have the articulation to discuss lone actors and the actual networks that are behind them and calling them lone wolves. They created the term lone wolf. Like, I personally think we should start calling them something that's going to embarrass them. There has to be a way to stop romanticizing the idea of this. Yeah. It's not romantic. There is no such thing as a lone wolf in this movement. Everybody's interconnected. Everybody's in touch. And since at least Metzger, they've been pushing that lone wolf, quote unquote, narrative to further their goals. And it's just a lie. I don't know. I just think just the whole movement itself. I hate that it's fascinating because it's such garbage and it's so bad. But it's like, fuck, dude, like this is why it's still growing. This is why it's still around. You have to know their playbook. You have to know how this works in order to take it out. But yeah. Anyway, thank you guys for talking. Thanks, Sam. It was great. See you guys. Bye. Bye.